to him be glory forever amen that was the entire bible and the essence of what god is doing that all things are created by him through him and to him and then they are created for his glory now god is the reason for everything that exists everything that exists and then his glory is the reason why he created everything listen to the words of uh, old puritan by name uh, henry scowgill he said the worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love the worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love and that is true with god also his worth and his excellency is measured by the object of his love and he loves his glory the bible also has another word for it name the object of god's love is his own name now even if you look at the entire bible the summary of the bible can be put in two words creation transgression or rather sin or fall third thing redemption fourth one recreation or new creation both spiritual and material or physical and fifth one eternity the entire progression of god's work is aimed at one single thing and that is his own glory which is his own name now man is made as the one person who can receive or who can behold this maximum glory no other creature can actually behold this amount of glory as against man can because god made man closest to him in his image that is why when man fell the bible doesn't say man fell short of his glory what does the bible say in romans 3:23 all have sinned and fallen short of god's glory you cannot define sin outside of god and his glory and why am i talking to you all of this without giving you the text i'm trying to just prepare our minds this morning to understand that the fall that we had brought about a big or rather a huge huge impact on every aspect of creation every aspect of creation because the fall is not to do with man's moral standard coming down but it is to do with the man falling short the greek word is literally lacking the glory of god i want us to turn this morning to genesis chapter 3 we're going to this morning meditate from genesis chapter 3 about the origin of this fall what did satan do to bring about this fall into the world 
In one, two chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, we are told that God created a world that is morally upright, that is morally good. There was no sin. It was a sinless world. But we certainly know that by chapter 3, Satan has already fallen. Probably the judgment of Satan is postponed. And then you see Satan disguising himself and through the serpent deceiving the first couple, the first parents or rather Adam and Eve who act as the federal head for all the human race. Now what I want us to do this morning is take Genesis chapter 3, just the first five verses and then look at how this falling short of God's glory has come and then understand how that is the same thing that is repeated in everybody's life, including the life of a believer, tons and tons of times. And from the scripture, answer how to counter this fall. Now, obviously, if you are not a believer, this thing doesn't apply to you. Because the Bible clearly says a natural man not only cannot understand, a natural man looks at God and godly things as foolishness. But only if you are a believer, this will be by the Spirit of God uh, brought to you. But before that, let's just look to the Lord in prayer to ask us to help Him. Father, as every week we come, we thank You that You are no respecter of man. Your word is above us, no matter who preaches. And I pray, O Lord God, that You will this morning come to visit us in the power and in the authority of Your word, Lord. We pray for clarity as we Listen, we pray for purity without errors from the word that is preached. We pray also for authority that your word may today cleanse us, convict us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. For we know that you are forever in the business of drawing us closer to you. Thank you for redeeming us. This morning, we pray for your spirit to have free hand in this place. And I pray that you will give us, O Lord, Minds that are willing to engage with the word and hearts that are willing to submit as the truth comes to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. This morning, I want to bring to your attention from Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 to 5. How the devil brought about the fall or the devil introduced deception and how man and woman chose to rebel against God. I'm calling my sermon the assassination and vindication of God's name. The assassination and vindication of God's name. If there is any way Satan can deceive God's creation, Satan himself is a fallen angel. If there is any way Lucifer can deceive God's creation, that is only by beginning to assault or beginning to assassinate God's character. Because God is righteous and there is no evil in him. So the only way Satan can actually succeed is by picturing God as the villain. I don't know if you know of uh, Neil T. Anderson. Uh, He um, wrote extensively on, uh, you know, spiritual warfare and how the occult world works and all of that. He made a statement that was very intriguing. He said, it is very, very interesting that most believers are more afraid of the devil than of God. Why? Because we operate from these lies. You might as well give probably another title to my sermon, which is uh, uh, Seven Lies Satan Told That We Still Believe Today. 
The seven lies that Satan told that we still believe today. And even if before we get into the passage that we will read and meditate, only five verses, let me just say this. Lies have power. Lies have power. They are not powerful. They have power. Listen to these words. The bigger the lie, the easier it is to deceive. Adolf Hitler. The bigger the lie, the easier it is to believe. And what did he believe? Mein Kampf. That was his uh, manifesto. That was his book. My struggle. And the book is riveted with the word struggle. And where did he get that idea from? Charles Darwin. And what did he do? He literally translated Charles Darwin's you know, um, evolution, biological evolution, and he applied it to all the uh, social progress that can happen. And he said, if nature itself doesn't allow the weaker to mate with the stronger, and the nature fought to come to the stage, how much more should we apply that to races, he said. And he said, the bigger the lie, the greater the chance of people believing. And when people followed him, if I'm not wrong, including his own um, wife whom he only married just the last day uh, before they committed suicide, most of them did not know what was going on in his mind, except those few people who were very intimate with him. The bigger the lie, the greater the chance to deceive. And the biggest lie ever told is about God's character is about God's character, which we still believe. So may I call your attention to Genesis chapter 3 now, as we look at these five verses. I want to put before you seven lies that Satan told in order to assassinate God's character, but how God vindicates his own name by displaying his character. Remember, I began by talking about the entire reason for creation History and eternity is one thing. God's glory. God's glory. You you can even say it is God's glory that necessitated sin. That necessitated salvation. The entire reason for everything is God and his own glory. God is passionate about his own glory. And therefore let us look at these seven lies. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is one of the amazing passages in the entire scripture. Not to dilute the inspiration of other passages. But here in the scripture, from God's own witness, you and I receive a first hand account of historical, factual evidence of man's fall. This is the beginning rather, this is the diagnosis of why the world is the way it is today. Why man is the way he is today. Why everything is the way it is today. It is the reason rather, this passage 
actually gives you solutions for every single issue in the world. Be it philosophical or personal. Be it microscopic or macroscopic. At every level, you can almost find answers here. Michael Ramston, who works with RZIM, once made a statement. He said, how billions of dollars are spent by the scientific world to come only close to Genesis chapter 3 to say a man has some internal problem. And here you find the first-hand witness or the account of historical, factual evidence of what went wrong with man and why the world is in the, the world is the way it is. In these five verses, we see an incredible change in the narrative itself. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see God's good work, God's perfect work. And God, the Bible tells us that on the seventh day, God rested. However, when you come to chapter 3, we are introduced to this strange creature. And most of us know that there are two creatures here. One is the literal reptile, Nakash in Hebrew, which sometimes is also translated as dragon. But we also know that the person who was not mentioned here is Satan. How do we know? Because the entire scripture testifies to that fact. Now, two interesting words do not appear in this passage, which is Satan and number two, sin. That means to say, God is telling us exactly what happened initially. And also wants us to know that this applies even to today, our lives. Now the theologians have, uh, uh, there's a principle. Okay, listen to this very carefully. It's called the principle of the first mention. Which means, anytime you want to study any particular doctrine, you must go to the first time it is mentioned. That is why our Lord Jesus Christ, every time he was apologetic or he was trying to be, uh, uh, um, trying to reason with the Pharisees, he would always go back to the first time that has happened. Be it marriage, be it uh, the Sabbath, be it the law, be it sin, be it divorce, be it adultery. He would always go back to the this principle called the law or the principle of first mention. And hence, the entire understanding of the doctrine of sin, the problem of evil, the predicament of man arises from these five verses or rather from this entire chapter. And we are introduced to Satan here and he comes and God, look at verse 1, the, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. I wonder why God never introduced Satan to us here. Because what God is writing about this literal reptile is also true about Satan. At human level, of all the beasts that are created, serpent was more cunning or more smart or more, you know, at a higher level uh, in terms of intelligence. In the same way, of all the angelic beings that are created, Satan or Lucifer before the fall was the most intelligent person was uh, endowed with a lot of blessings from God. from God, And then we are told these seven lies. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. 
and he said to the woman we know for sure that uh, he is not talking about just the reptile but the person who has possessed the reptile and that is satan he said to the woman can we read those first three or four words of satan please has god indeed said has god indeed said now if you read genesis 1 and 2 that is a dead giveaway that must have that 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 should have actually shot a red light in uh, eve's mind has god indeed said number one the first lie that satan told adam and eve which we all still believe first one god is not the lord if you're writing it down god is not the lord some of you are like yeah big deal let me tell you it is a very big deal it is a very big deal now if you read genesis chapter 1 32 times the word god appears elohim okay which talks about the plurality in the person of godhead but ever since god created man in genesis chapter 2 he doesn't just or the writer doesn't just write god but he uses the word lord god now what is the difference between god and lord god talks about his title his position lord is the personal name of god himself now by omitting the name lord satan is communicating a lie now what is that lie god is not the lord let me just explain quickly my son is here cyrus baby is his title cyrus is his name You understanding i can just say baby and not refer to my son also but you will never understand that i'm talking about my son baby is a title it is a position cyrus is talking about a person who has a personhood who has certain attributes who is at a certain stage in life what is the big deal about omitting the name lord lord is the personal name of god himself from the time god communicated to adam and eve it all the scripture always says the lord god commanded the lord god spoke the lord god said yahweh not just elohim now satan's agenda is this satan's agenda is not to remove god from our minds no that can never happen as somebody said as a anthropologist said man is incurably religious that's why a professor in my college used to say nobody is a born atheist you have to choose to become one you can't because you can't remove the desire and hunger for worship from your heart you will worship something and dr ravi zacharias in one of his sermons says that is why even a scientist a natural an atheist worships god science is his religion reasoning is his god nobody can remove our hunger for god and satan can't satan doesn't want to why because he wants to be the alternative that is why i believe atheism will not survive the last age because there must be a unified religion it will submerge with the one religion that will come up and satan's agenda here is to 
tell us this lie that God is not the Lord. I got a lot of feedback. That I, that's why I'm not speaking at 1.75 speed, okay? It's not like I'm processing. So please pay attention. I'm making an effort to speak to you at this speed. What is the lie in this? What is the meaning of Yahweh? We will ask Sam to project the next verse. Exodus chapter 3 verse 13 to 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses. Can we read that please? I am who I am. Now the Hebrew word is Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. Literal translation is to be. It's a verb. To be. David Pawson gives a nice connotation to it. He said, it means always. Always. What does the name of God indicate? Even in Exodus chapter 34, I didn't give the verse, you don't have to project it. Even in Exodus 34, when God first comes to speak to Moses, when Moses asks God to show him his glory, he begins by saying, I am the Lord, the Lord. Usually we jump those two words and go to the attributes of God. God is merciful, gracious and all of that. No, I am the Lord, which means I am Yahweh, which means I am to be, which means I am self-existent, self-sufficient, self-satisfied. I find reason for, I don't find a reason for my existence in anyone. I am independent of everyone and anyone. I exist because of myself. I am my own address. I am the reason for my own existence. Now, if you know your Bible well, Satan was the one creature who was closest to God. If there's anybody who knows God before the creation of man, it is Satan, it is Lucifer who has known God. And this is my belief. I'm, I'm just assuming this. Uh, probably he knew that that will be the first attack on assaulting or assassinating God's character in the minds of Adam and Eve. Has God, not Lord God. Which means to say that somehow Satan is trying to project God as a needy person. As a person who finds... Now listen to this very carefully. If you understand this, you will know why the rest of the lies can be built on this. Okay, So that is why I am taking time to explain to you this. If Satan can somehow make Adam and Eve believe and us believe that God is not self-existent, that God is not self-sufficient, God is not self-satisfied, he can put into our minds a picture of a needy God and hence a greedy God too. And hence, work salvation by works can be one religion that Satan can create everywhere. Understand this very, very important. If he is not self-existent, self-sufficient and self-satisfied, then he will have huge demands on his creation. Why? To meet his own depravity. But is that the truth? No. Look at Acts chapter 17 verse 24 to 25. The God, now Paul is talking to the uh, people in Greece, Athens. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not need, does not live in temples made by man. Can we read from verse 25 please? Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Pause. It's 
It's, it's being sarcastic. As though he needs anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. First Timothy 6.13 actually says, He gives life to all, including Satan. So, the God that you and I worship is not just God. He is the Lord God. The self-existent, self-sufficient, self-satisfied. Why am I, why am I taking this time to preach this truth? In fact, when I preached the first sermon also, we talked about it. Why? My friends, listen. If you know that God does not need anything from you, that will liberate you. You will stop doing good works which are filthy rags in His sight and you will enjoy thoroughly the righteousness of Christ. Really. That's why the Beatitudes begin by saying, blessed are the, those who recognize their spiritual poverty come to Jesus. Some of the best prayers in the Bible, which were answered quickly, were the shortest. Lord, have mercy on me, a leper. Poof, gone. Why? (laughs) He knew he was a leper. He deserves nothing. And he knows God doesn't need him. Yet, God can give him everything. But, The word Lord does not only mean a God is self-existent, self-sufficient and self-satisfied. This uh, has been an eye-opener for me. In Exodus chapter 6 verse 2 to 9, I want you to just go through these verses. I will read it to you. You will find four interesting facts in this passage. This is the first time God tells Moses that by this name I have not introduced myself to anyone previously. I am introducing myself to the name by, by the name Lord. Look at this. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. God made himself known to them as Almighty. Okay. But never as with, with this name. That doesn't mean God did not reveal himself. But God's revelation came progressively. So to Moses... Or the children of Israel, which is, which is going to be an object lesson of God's salvific work to all mankind, just before God delivered them from Egypt, God says, listen, my name is the Lord. And by this name, I did not reveal myself to anyone. I revealed myself to them as uh, uh, the powerful one and all that. But here, at this specific junction in human history, I want to show myself, which people have never known before. That is, I am the Lord. Now, what is the meaning of it? He gives it in the form of the work that he's going to do. Let's follow him. Verse 4. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. The land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel. Can we read that please? I am the Lord and... I will bring out you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. You see three and one more thing is there in verse 7. I will take you by my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 8, the last part says, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Four times the name I am the Lord appears and every time the name appears, God gives the meaning of that name in the form of the work he is going to do. And what is the work he is going to do? Number one, I will deliver people. I will redeem 
people from their slavery. I will show them mercy, but I will also bring about the acts of judgment. My friends, listen. If Satan can get people to believe that he is not the Lord, meaning he is not a saving God, religions can thrive. They can thrive. I found this fascinating because Yahweh literally actually means self-existent, self-sufficient and self-satisfied. Okay? That is implied. But he is not just a God who is eternally existent. The center of God's heart is salvation. God, if you were to open the depths of God's heart, you will see God as a redeeming God. You will see God, like John Flavel said, God's works are like the Hebrew alphabet. You must read it backwards. You read the entire human history, you know it is God's glory that necessitated the fall, the redemption and the new creation. It is not the other way around. It was not God's plan B to redeem Israel and to redeem people from their sins. Jesus is not God's plan B. As Max Lucado said, even before the crunching of the sound of the fruit was heard in the Garden of Eden, Jesus was already on his way to Calvary. God in his heart is a redeeming God. This morning, God wants you to be liberated by the truth that he is your savior. A savior who needs nothing from you. A savior who does not need one single good from you for him to receive you and to give you his approval. That liberates you. In fact, that, that will propel you to do good works. Really. And how every religion has inverted the formula. Why? Because of the lie. All religions are born in Genesis chapter 3. And the oldest is humanism. Really. Man at the center. Good works at the center. Salvation by works at the center. Look at some of the major religions. Listen, if you deny that the God of the Bible is not the Lord God, the saving God, the self-existent God, all religions can be categorized into this thing. Look at Judaism, the oldest religion. They don't believe. In fact, Jewish rabbis, theologians, Jewish theologians do not believe that Genesis chapter 3 is actually a, 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 a depiction of the origin of evil. They say it was Adam's choice. Everybody has a choice. That is why they struggle to accept Christ as Jesus. They don't mind accepting him as Messiah. They mind accepting him as a savior. Why? They think they don't need salvation. And the core of Judaism can be seen in the pharisaical attitude. How do we know? Paul says, in Philippians 2, he says, 2 or 3, he says, right? According to the righteousness of the law, I am impeccable, blameless. That's why John MacArthur says, Isaiah 53 is like a torture chamber for Jewish rabbis. <laughs> really? Really? Whom will you apply that to? Whom will you apply that to? The first 39 chapters, Isaiah is called, called as the mini Bible. The first 39 chapters are like the Old Testament, judgment. 40th chapter. Tell them that I am the Lord. A voice crying out in the wilderness. 27 chapters are like the New Testament. Grace and salvation by faith alone. And they deny it. Judaism, do not believe in the total depravity of man. 
Therefore, they don't see a necessity for a savior. Islam. They do not believe in original sin. They don't. They don't. Yet, they also do not believe, they do not have the assurance of salvation. I was talking to a cab driver once, trying to share the gospel with him. He was trying to share his gospel with me. I saw the mat there and I told him, what is this? Right? So he was also equipped. So he said, he knew. So he, we started having a conversation. He said, I'm coming back from Namaz and all that. So he said, the Bible is corrupt and all that. See, so I I can tell him 100 mistakes in their holy book. I didn't want to do that. I didn't know 100, but I could have pointed out a few. And I told him, listen, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? He said, no. What about the greatest man that you picturize or you have? Your own uh, um, holy prophet, will he? Only God knows. I said, boss, listen. What's the point of doing everything if you're not sure? What's the point? Hinduism is talking to an Iskon devotee, a neighbor. He says, their understanding of evil comes from their own God. The front part of God is good, the back part of God is evil. Now listen, listen, it is very easy to laugh it away. This guy is going to hell. This guy is going to hell. Yes. How do we tell him? The God of this age has blinded, not the eyes, minds. It's difficult to deliver. But the sad part is, church believes this truth. Why do you worship God? Why do you worship God? He needs nothing from you. He doesn't exist on your obedience. Obedience is for your own joy. Look at the God of the Bible. He's the Lord God. Self-existent, but also saving. Salvation is at the center of God's heart. Revelation chapter 13, verse, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, can we read verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. When did God choose us? My friends, listen. In God's heart, salvation comes before creation. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. When was the Lamb slain? Before the... God always carried cross in His heart. He always did. So, what is the lie that Satan wants us to believe even today? God is a needy creature. He's like anyone else. He's needy. The bigger the lie, the easier the deception. God is not a saving God. Let's turn to some religion. Some religion. Almost all the letters in the New Testament address this issue. Galatians is an exclusive one, but every letter addresses this issue in some way or the other. Jesus is sufficient. Only Jesus is sufficient. The second lie, the second lie, God is not the Lord. The second lie, God is not sovereign. Look at those words. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. This is the first question in the Bible. 
Prior to that, you have no questions. You only have assertions and answers. This is the first question in the Bible. The only second question in the Bible is asked by God. And in between, no questions were asked. Rather, Adam and Eve take the lead of that question and begin to think that way. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It's like this. It's like Satan is trying to say, why don't we talk about this? About this God? It's just the title. Why don't we talk about him? Why don't we question what he said? And by the way, did he actually say? And if he said it, wow, what did he say? Did he tell you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The idea here is this. If God is not independent, if God is not self-existent, you and I can assume that he is not sovereign. In other words, he doesn't have the right to be himself. He doesn't have... Ha- uh, let me just define sovereignty. Let me just give you the meaning. Sovereignty means to for God to be... For God to have rightful authority to be God. As the owner and the ruler of the universe, he is free to will and to do all that he does. May I just repeat that for you? For God, sovereignty means to have the rightful authority to be God. As the owner, ruler and the, uh, and the, um, of the universe, he is free to will and to do whatever he does. But now, that is being questioned. Why? Because everything centers or everything is standing on that first lie. A God is not self-existent. God is not a saving God. And therefore, why should we listen to him? The idea here, Dr. John MacArthur says, the idea here is this. The idea is, why don't we now render human judgment on the absolute truth of God and his word? Now this is a, this is the work of a genius. When I see Satan in his fallen nature, I understand how great God is. Really. If he is like this in his fallen nature, how was he before the fall? Yet, it is not for angels that he came to die, but for the children of Abraham. Oh, how our father loves us. Oh, how our God loves us. Really. Listen. So the thought is, God is not sovereign. So therefore we can question the absolute truths. We can question what God says. We can render and impose our judgment on God. You know, when you look at the created order, who is at the top of creation? Not the, I'm not including God, but at the top of God's creation, who stands at the top? Adam and Eve, as the king and the queen, who are supposed to be wise regents ruling God's creation. And God said, you will have dominion, and you will subdue, you will rule over every single thing. And if you read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the last thing that comes in the order is the reptile world. Okay? And everything that creeps. Now Satan takes the least thing in the creation to attack the next head in the creation, Eve, to somehow deny the authority of her headship, Adam, in order to not accept the sovereign authority of God. A military genius. 
And that is how Antichrist also will be. There's no truth there. It's deception. Powerful enough to lead people away. And the second lie here is this. A God is not sovereign. Hence, you can question God's absolute truth. You can question God's word. You must not trust him. Isn't that our problem too? How many of us already know the truth and we don't obey? Why? Deep down, subconsciously, there is this bloodline of Adam still flowing in us. We know it. We know it. We know it. We don't want to do it. We should be like Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. The Bible says, Ezra has devoted himself to study the law, to obey it, and then to teach it. We are eager to teach, not to first apply to ourselves. We are like that soap company, which is very, which is doing a fantastic business. Everybody's clothes are white. Everybody is looking very good. But when the uh, owner of the company went to the um, uh, go down, everybody was stinking. And the manager said, when asked, why is it that everybody in the city looks clean, fresh, everywhere our billboards are there. But here, all of us are stinking and dirty. He said, sir, we only supply, we don't apply. <laughs> we are busy. We are busy. We are busy. And here we see Satan coming with the second lie. A God is not sovereign. Has God indeed said that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? But what is the truth? God is sovereign, friends. God is sovereign church. Look at Isaiah 46, 9-10. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. Now, if, if this statement can be made even in Quran. I am the sovereign benevolent one. There is none beside us. Now, how do we know what the truth is? Because every religion claims exclusivity and says that the God of that book is the only God. How do we know that God of the Bible is the only sovereign one? Look at this. And there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. How can God declare? Not just because God foreknows. It is because God ordains. And God is the one who brings everything to its accomplished end. How do you know? How do you know? It's 300 plus prophecies only about Jesus Christ. 85% of the prophecies in the Old Testament are already fulfilled. We don't stand a chance that 15% won't be fulfilled. Really. And the one thing that can be practically proven which the Bible talks about throughout is the total depravity of man. You cannot disprove that. That is one thing that almost every religion disapproves of. God says, I am the Lord. How will you know that I am sovereign and I do whatever I want? Because I declare it even before it happens. He's sovereign. Number two, he's not only sovereign in his being, he's also sovereign in his pleasure. Psalm 135, 6. What does the Lord say? Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Please, keep that in your minds. Whatever the Lord does, he, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, on earth, in the seas, and all deeps. He's not only sovereign in his pleasure, He's also sovereign in his power and the execution of power. We read this already in one of the sermons that I read, but let's just look at this. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, after coming to know the Lord, in this is almost like his testimony. This is like uh, standing in front of a crowd and telling the testimony. This is what he says. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Wait a minute. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar before this incident did not know his own gods? Did he know? Yes. I am sure he must have seen the power demonstrated by their gods too. And he knew that they were not just idols. There was power there. But here he is declaring. There is power here. But there is one power up there. Whose dominion. See what he says. Dominion is everlasting. Kingdom endures. And now he says. Now after that he says. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will. Can we read that please? Among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand and say why did you do this? God is accountable to none. Really. And it is interesting that the first person who raises this university question, if God is good, why is there evil, is Adam. Really. The woman that you gave, is saying if you are good, if evil exists, it's because of you. Therefore I just have one choice. Either I deny you, or I make my own God. This is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, after his salvation, declaring that the God of the universe, the only God, the saving God, is above the gods that he worshipped. So God is sovereign in his being. God is sovereign in his pleasure. God is sovereign in the execution of his power. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Ephesians 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the... Can we read this please? According to the purpose of him who works... All things according to the counsel of his will. There are four words there. Purpose, sorry, predestination, purpose, counsel and will. And every word comes out of that first word will. His counsel which makes him purpose certain things, which makes him predestined comes from his will. See, God alone has free will. I am not saying human beings don't have our free will is influenced (laughs) beginning with Adam and Eve, beginning with Satan's. God's will is never influenced. It is uninfluenced. He is sovereign in his being. He is sovereign in his pleasure. He is sovereign in his power. He is sovereign in his will. My friends, if the church believes this, the way we pray will be different. What was uh, Moses' prayer? Show me your What was David's prayer, Psalm 27? One thing I desire. What is that? You know where he mentions that you read Psalm 27. Literally, people are around him waiting to slay him. In the middle of that such high tension, (laughs) the last thing you want to pray for is God's presence. He says, Lord, my heart is on one thing. This business, this danda will go on. My heart is on one thing. You, your glory. What did Joshua pray for? Stop the sun. What is that a video game or what to stop? See your prayers. Your prayers are born out of your knowledge of God. Listen to your own prayers. And you will know which God you worship. Arsis Prol, the late theologian said, The issue is not whether we believe in God, but whether we believe in the God who is. Looked at two lies. God is not the Lord. The answer is, He is the Lord. 
is not only self-existent. The center of God's heart is salvation. Salvation. That is why he, he, he delights when his children enjoy his salvation. When they come to him as beggars and say, say, and say, we can give you nothing and you need nothing, but we have come in greed. We want to have you all. Number two, God is sovereign. Absolutely sovereign. And let me tell you this. If you want to know God's sovereignty, study other religions. It becomes even easier. Really. Third one, third third lie. And the woman said to the serpent, look at verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, can we read that please? You will not certainly die. The third lie, God is not truthful. See, all the lies have a logical connection. They stand on the premise of the previous lie. The first lie is God is not Lord, which means he's not self-existent. Neither can does he have the power to save. Number two out of that is born this lie. Therefore, he is not sovereign. He is not the autonomy here. He is not the monarch. You are free to make your own choices. And that begins by doubting him and the authority that he imposes on you by making absolute truths. Third thing, because God is not sovereign, I don't think you have to trust him always. How do you know if he himself is basically a jimmick who is trying to survive on other things so he's not truthful? You don't have to trust his word. The attack on the Bible, the attack on God's word is the only way which Satan can thrive and survive both outside the church and inside the church. Really. That is why the Bible says, pastor was preaching, right? Where there is no vision, people. And uh, if you compare that with uh, Hosea, God says, my people are perishing because of the lack of knowledge of me. Knowledge of me. You know, we should say this in our church too. This church has been given a lot of revelation. God was gracious. I go to a lot of churches where pastors are not born again. I want to ask you this question. Are you growing? Or just feeding, 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 feeding? Getting intellectual information? Are you growing? How do you know if you're growing? You will also do great exploits. Really. There will be transformation in the family. There will be transformed husbands, transformed wives. And that in fact will affect the children. That will in fact the, uh, affect the community that we are working in. And then Paul prays about uh, uh, strengthen yourselves, wear the armor of God to fight the enemy. We don't need power to fight the enemy first. We need power to win over our old nature. That comes by the filling of the spirit. And then it works, God works his way out, inside out. No man of God, no woman of God really is made in the ministry. It begins at home. So the third one, God is not truthful. How do we know? Look at what Satan says. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not certainly die. By the way, from verse 2, and the woman said, till uh, the uh, conversation, uh, till the answer that uh, Satan gives, we will deal with that at the end of the point. But for now, let us understand this. How could Satan so boldly convince them that God is telling you a lie. God said you will certainly die. Eve said we may die. Satan says you will not die. 
How do you decide which is the truth? You can't decide now because I've already gone too far. Says Lewis says, progression means going in the right way. Even when you're going in the wrong way, progression means to take a U-turn and then heading back the right way. The longer you delay, the more difficult it is for you to come back to the truth. And that was why Jesus was always interested in giving the truth. Lazarus died. Mary is crying. Martha is crying. Oh, if you were only here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus gives a lecture on resurrection 101. You know, they say, when you go to a dead people's, dead man's, a dead person's house, to a family that has lost his beloved, the best thing is to keep quiet. Jesus breaks that rule. And at the face value, you almost feel like Jesus is very insensitive. He's like, I am the resurrection and the life. They're crying for four days. And Jesus stands there and gives a lecture on the doctrine of resurrection. Why? Because we want solutions. God wants us to know the truth. Lazarus will die again. But the whole world needs to know the truth. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And they that believe in him will never die. Even if he dies, he will live forever. Right? God used that as an object lesson to demonstrate that everlasting truth. We are interested in solutions. God is interested in the truth. That is why when Adam questions him, because of you, look at the sovereign divinity. God doesn't answer that question. Not because he can't. Adam can't understand. I can tell 101 things to my son. And one of the, one of the, one of his most favorite things is to go to the edge of the bed and hang like a cliffhanger. He wants to put his head down, my son. And he thinks that we have no other business except to protect him. And the time and the moment both of us try to stop him, he cries like we are evil. He makes those faces. By now he makes those faces, really. Is sin in them, okay? There is sin in them. As Woody Beckham said, that's a wiper in a diaper. <laughs> really. There is sin in them. They can read our emotions. Now what do I, how do I tell my son, how do I tell my son, you can't go that way. If we let you go, you will break your head. There's something called the law of gravity. There's an idea, there's a concept called physics. And there's reality called pain. Will he understand? No. So what do I do? Even if he thinks I am evil, I have to pull him. Even if he cries, I have to pull him. So what do I do? As a father, evil, but still a loving father, what do I do? I wait for him to grow up, to understand the whole mechanism of world. God waits for us to grow. The third thing is this. The lie that Satan told us, you will not certainly die. God is a liar. Did he tell you that? First of all, he stopped you from eating from any tree. He is not Lord at all. He is not self-existent. He can't even save you. He is a needy person. He thrives on pushing commands on you. His survival itself is dependent on your obedience. Did he tell you that? He is not sovereign. You don't have to trust him. Question his authority. You are limitless. Come on, do what you can. And moreover, he is not truthful. You will not certainly die. How can you die? You will not certainly die. He is a liar. He is a liar. Deep down, we all believe this lie. We find it very, very difficult. We don't say it out. We live it out. Is God a liar? Is God a liar? Let's see what the Bible says. 
1 John 5, 20 to 21. And we know that the Son of God, again the question is this, how do we know that again this God is the only God of truth, the only truthful God? There are many other religions competing for it, right? There are many other ideologies competing for it. How do we know here? Look at this. 1 John 5, 20 to 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and how do you know that this God of the Bible is the only true God because He gives eternal life? Now you may say that is subjective. Because when I talk to a person who comes from his con background, he says, even Krishna gives me peace. Even Krishna gives me, if in fact Krishna's desire is that I attain that transcendental position where I am one with him. There's only one merciful, benevolent God and that is Allah. So how do I compete with this? Here yeah, the Bible says, Jesus gives you eternal life. But the question is that is subjective. So when I was talking to this person, I asked him this question. Well, what happens? I said, there are questions that you need to answer. One of the questions you need to answer is, what is our destiny? Where are we heading? And he spoke about the num- numerous janmas, re-janmas that you have. My question was, how do you know that after you die, you'll come back to life? You know how I know? Because I know of a person who died and came back to life. And therefore, I can trust him. They say that there is 200% more evidence just for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for the existence of the person called Julius Caesar. Not for any other subject. Only for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know that there are professors and universities who do not believe in God and the uh, Bible but take Bible as their GPS to identify different places in the world? There are professors of Egyptology who take the Bible to be the only trusted source to identify the Garden of Eden, X, Y, and Z. God is the only truthful person. Why? How do I know? Because he sent his son. And his son demonstrated to me by destroying the greatest difficulty that I face, death. And therefore when he says, if you die you will also be like me if you believe in me, that after you die, in the sense, after you die, you have eternal life. He demonstrated not by words, but by action. Because he defeated death and came back to life. Now show me another person, and we can sit and debate. Show me another person, I am willing to leave Christ. Show me another person who is superior to him, who not just spoke, but who demonstrated by his words. God is truthful because he sent his son, and in his son, we know what is truth, and we know what is life. Look at the next verse, Psalm 119, verse 60. Is God truthful? Yes. Can we read this verse together, please? The sum of your word is, Psalm 119, verse 60. 160, I gave you the wrong verse. Let me read it to you. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The sum of your word is truth. And that is why Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. And what is the truth? Listen, there is no other way you can be... Sanctify means what? Holy, set apart. There is no other way you can have the holiness of God outside of the purging of the truth of God's word. And half our problem is that we want to become holy without the Holy Spirit's power. We want to become holy without the holy words act in our life. We cannot. That is where religion comes into picture. That is where good works after salvation also come into picture. Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You don't have to do good works for God. 
He has done the greatest good work. When we are sanctified through our lives, good flows too, beginning with our wives and husbands. It goes out. Look at Romans chapter 1 verse 19 to 20, okay? Is God truthful? Yes. How do I know? 1 John 5 20, his son came, his word is the sum of truth. Not just his word, Romans chapter 1 verse 19 to 20. Read this carefully, this will help you if you are a student, you struggle with people who come to you to attack uh, about the invisibility of God. Look at this. For what can be known about God is louder. Whatever can be known about God is plain to them. Who made it plain? God himself made it plain. How? Because God has shown it to them. How did God show it to them? What did God show them? Two things. His invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. You know, you take various translations, they use the word clearly seen, clearly understood, clearly seen. Listen, creation's primary job is to witness God and his attributes. Everything else is secondary. Our employment, our career, our pleasures, they're all secondary. That is why I think Dr. MacArthur says the entire garden of Eden and the rest of creation is like a symphony that would have actually protested against all the lies that he wanted to believe. Everything you see tells about two things. There is some eternal power. Scientists believe that it, uh, uh, universe was not eternal. Otherwise, it would have never, we would have never come to this position. If it was always eternal. It is not. And therefore the question is, some eternal power created. Because you need raw material to bring everything right. Number two, there is also order in this creation. There is order. There is incredible order in design. Whether you are sitting under a microscope or a macroscope, telescope. There is incredible order. Why? Because it is the witness of God. Creation is the witness of God to tell us that there is a person who has eternal power and who is divine. Therefore, the Bible says they have no excuse. This doesn't just apply to 21st century. It applies to Adam and Eve as well. Is God truthful? Yes. Look at Titus chapter 1 verse 1 to 2. Look at the last verse. In hope of eternal life, which God who never... Some versions use the word cannot. He cannot lie. Now the Bible not only affirms that God is truthful in the positive way, it also tells us in the negative way what and why he cannot do. Because it is contrary to his nature. Which means what? Have you received a promise in your life? And has it not been fulfilled? Hang on. Hang on. God is waiting for you to grow. Because a blessing given to a child will actually destroy him. And he waits for us to grow. His word is truthful. Charles Spurgeon says, the Bible is like a checkbook. Use it whenever you want. The problem is, do you know that it is a checkbook? And do you live like you are your father's son? Or you live like a master's slave? Now I took you through a few verses to make one point that God is truthful. However, how could Satan so confidently convince them that God is a liar? You will not certainly die. Now he is no more disguising himself with questions. He is making assertions. His lies are now the truth that they are that they have no options but to believe. How did he do it? I will take you through two verses now. I want you to please sit up and spot the differences. Why did Satan confidently lie? Because Eve was so casual about the word of God. So casual. 
and look at these two verses. Genesis 2.16 and Genesis 3.2. Let me just take you through these two verses. The first is the command that was originally given to Adam and Eve. The second is the command, is the uh, rephrasing uh, of the command by Eve when Satan came to speak. Look at the differences. Number one, how does the command begin? Verse 16. Huh? No, the first verse, 16th verse. How does the command begin? And the Lord God commanded. Now, when you look at Eve's rephrasal, what does she do? She removes Lord. You read the next part, actually it's there in the next part. She also addresses God as God and not Lord God. Satan has succeeded. Okay? Now listen, they were not ignorant like us. Some of you might say, what is there? She is just trying to rephrase what God said. No! If that were the case, Jesus will not say, not a dot or a tittle will pass away from the word of God. Dot, a tittle is what? That's the tiniest stroke in the Hebrew alphabet section. It's like an inverted apostrophe. Why, why is he talking about He's not even talking about a full word. Why? And mind you, they were in the, they were the only couple who lived in the sinless world. So their intelligence levels must have been at the peak. No, Newton can compare to them. Really? So something is happening in his mind. The tampering of God's word. The flippant attitude she had towards the word of God. The careless, casual attitude she had towards the word of God. She omitted the word Lord. Next one. It says Lord God commanded. She says God said. Don't think I'm reading too much into this. I read the Hebrew text yesterday night. You know what the word command is translated as in English? The transliteration and Yahweh Elohim, he is instructing the Adam. Instruction. It was not just a command that was thrown at them. He carefully instructed them, tutored them, gave them an understanding of why he is saying it. She removes the instruction part. She says God just said it. She removed Lord, she removed command. And by the way, this verse begins with a conjunction. Do you see that? And the Lord God. It is actually a flow of the previous verse. When the Bible was written, there were no verses, right? It's actually a continuation of the previous verse. Now what is there in the previous verse? The Bible says the Lord God planted a garden and in it, he placed Adam and then what did God say? He said, you shall two things. You shall Tend to it. And the second thing is, keep it. The word for keep in Hebrew is also the word which is used to indicate some sort of evil intruder that can come and asking for attention to protect. And in that context, God says, do not eat. In many ways, in many ways, they are warned against the evil intruder who can come. Let me say this. Why should we read the Bible like this? You know what? You will never read a will paper like the way you read the Bible. You are more careful in reading the will paper. If somebody writes you a will. How do lawyers read uh, the law? Very carefully. That's how they find the loopholes. Very careful. Very tiny clauses can bring people out or send them into jail. How much more should you and I read the scripture? And I will tell you after this how Satan carefully omit certain things and very carefully insist on certain things that God said. So she omitted the word of name of God. She omitted the instruction of God. And the next one is this. 
Look at verse. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely. Some versions also translate that word as freely. You are freely to eat of every tree. What does Eve say? We may eat of the fruit of the... What did she omit? What did she omit? Freedom or surely. So already in Eve's mind, you can see God as a restrictor of freedom. Can I say this? If there's anybody who fights and who wants your freedom, it is God. But in our mind, we think exactly opposite. That's why we think he has restricted sex to marriage. Really. That's why we think he always restricts our prayers. And doesn't answer every way, every time we pray. Listen, it is not only what God answers or prepares you for eternity. It also, it is also what God doesn't answer or prepares you for eternity. And here you see, God says, I am for your freedom. You are free to eat. Now, some of us, of course, go to the other extreme. Even though there is freedom given, we want to pray. Adam didn't have to pray about which fruit to eat. It depends on your mood, depends on your taste bud, depends on your liking, depends on the amount you can consume. Go ahead. Within the will, a lot of times we want to ask God for, you know, God's will. But about things that he already told us not to touch, there we are never careful. And here Eve says, you know, she removes, she omitted that freedom part. Second thing, look at this carefully. God says, you may surely, can you identify one more thing there after surely? Every tree, wonderful. What does Eve say? Fruit of the trees. You see in her mind, there is a desire that is being created by the doubt that has been released into her mind to question God's character by questioning God's word. God is not Lord, God is not sovereign, hence he is not truthful and therefore slowly her understanding of God's goodness is being narrowed and narrowed. She is forgetting all the pleasures that have been kept before her. Every tree is given to me. Look at one more thing. Every tree in the garden. We'll go quickly to the next one. Look at verse 3. Can you go to the next? Uh, can you go to verse 17 and also verse 3? Genesis 2, 17 and verse 3. Let me read it to you. What does God say in Gen- If you have your Bibles, you can actually open to Genesis 2, 17. And also, because it's just in the next phase, Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. What does God say? Look at this. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. How does Eve rephrase that? Is somebody there? Can you read it for me? But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the... What did God say? I want you to spot the difference. God is speaking about one specific tree. Eve is talking about a place that is in the middle of the garden. And if she was really interested about the middle of the garden, there is one more tree there. The tree of life. If she went till there, pulled by the lies of Satan, looking at the tree, saying, God is such a a person who disappoints me. She can turn away and look at that tree that is better than the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. Are you understanding? Slowly the mind is getting conked up. Slowly, but surely it is getting conked up. God specifically mentioned the name of the tree. That as a tree that gives you the knowledge of good and evil. Why does a person who lived in a sinless state want to know what evil is? Why? Why? All evil, all evil begins by looking at God as an evil person. 
Really, that is the beginning. The sin is not even in crossing the command. The sin is in doubting God's character. And that is where Satan thrives. Because he cannot remove the concept of God from us. Nobody can. We are made God, we are God bound people. God consciousness from us is inextricable. Absolutely inextricable. And therefore there is only one way the enemy can thrive. The enemy can survive by creating a, a picture as God as the villain. What is the problem with the uh, guy in the talent story? Five talents, two talents, one talent. What was this problem? You are a... Who told him that? Who told him? Who told him that God is a hard master? That's the question. Here is a set of lies. Third um, uh, thing is this. She removes freedom that God has given her. She restricts all that God has said. And suddenly she says, she removes all the goodness that God has displayed before her. Every tree, she omits that. Now look at the next one. God says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why did God restrict them from not eating it? By the way, is that a magical tree? No. It is created by God. And it is as good as any other tree. How do I know? Genesis 2.9 says everything that God created there, particularly in the garden of Eden, was pleasant to the eye and good for food. So there is nothing in the tree. It is in obeying and knowing the character of God. And God says, I am sovereign. I will be the definer of all reality. Abide by it. But here Eve says, no, 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 no. no. I think God doesn't want us to define reality. Eve totally changed the command from here. Please look at this. She says what God never said and she never says what God said. Look at this. Look at what she says. She says, the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. God did not say that. She says that. Number two, the tree is in the middle, absolutely. But there's another tree also, right? She omits that. And life is greater than just the knowledge. We will look at it in a while, okay? Second thing, we can almost feel in her words, God as a restricting person, a killjoy. And that is how the next two lies will also come upon, okay? Look at this. She says in the middle of the garden, Why did she use that word? You can almost feel Eve's feelings and emotions and mind working out her own desire. God has restricted me from that one thing in the center. That is where my heart is. Listen to this. Every time you sin, that is how your mind works. You somehow think that one thing that God has not given is much more important even than Jesus dying on the cross. Middle of the garden. If she really were to think of the middle of the garden, she could have seen the tree of life. Next, God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. What God is saying is this, I am not just a loving father, I am a holy judge. Right? I take my character seriously. It's about me, I am holy. Don't cross that line. And you know what? The very day you eat, judgment is coming, judgment is certain, And judgment is irreversible. And judgment is severe. What is death? Being separated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18 Soul leaving the body is a consequence. The cause is we being separated from God's life. What does Eve say? Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She added. Some commentators say Adam would have said. But you don't need to add man's word. To God's word. God's word can protect and defend you. She added. 
okay maybe adam would have told that to prohibit for her from eating but she omitted the part the day you eat very flippant about god's judgment that is how we all think every time i sin my wife says teachers have more judgment be careful you know what i toy with this idea somehow it won't happen to me thomas watson said what a fool he is who for a drop of pleasure dives into the ocean of wrath and we are like that for a drop of pleasure she replaced the word surely with or as a big difference as a big big difference now why did i take you through this god is truthful everything they needed for life and godliness is not given in just like first second bit of one it is given in genesis chapter 2 everything they needed for life and godliness that they may partake in divine nature but what has happened she chose to trespass the command of god with that casual attitude now compare eve's attitude with jesus attitude look at matthew chapter 26 verse 52 if you're feeling sleepy stand up slap yourself throw some water on your face but listen matthew 26 52 to 54 then jesus said to peter put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword do you think listen to this do you think that i cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels a very good friend of mine by the name vinith who worked with me for a long time told me that when he was in the us uh, to the church that he would go to he saw a picture somewhere in the church or somewhere a unique picture of jesus in the garden of gethsemane and behind him legions of angels with their hand on the sword a very unique picture jesus says do you think i can't command a reversal of the entire saga of history itself but he doesn't stop there what does he say but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so god is not just truthful in commanding us but in keeping his own word he sent his son listen to the words of sinclair ferguson he said everything in garden of eden when adam and eve were there when they looked at the tree there was no appeal or attraction in the tree for adam and eve to be drawn away in fact everything told them not to eat but they still went ahead and ate that's rebellion but from the tree that jesus ate from everything told him very clearly and the people around him that it is unappealing unattractive and repulsive but he still went ahead and ate them that is obedience why why as kevin de young said somebody messaged me yesterday night a young person he said the the incredible worth of the father is seen in the unswerving obedience of the son the worth of god is seen in the obedience of the son everything in the garden was eve hungry was eve hungry <laughs> no were they short of any pleasures no in fact they haven't even explored the entire pleasures really really what did they do it's rebellion that's not just ignorance and missing the mark accidentally that is an intentional willful rebellion against god because of the set of lies they have believed do we trust him at his word that's the question
So we looked at how many? Three so far. There are four more to go. I'll quickly close. Three so far. What's the first lie? God is not the Lord. Next lie? God is not sovereign. Next lie? God is not truthful. And I told you, it, there's a logical progression. Fourth one. Then the serpent said to the woman, verse four, last part. You read those words? Then the devil has got enough foothold now. Then the serpent said to the woman, now no more questions, no more ascensions. Here comes the command of Satan. What is it? You will not surely die. Satan's agenda is twofold. Number one, to picture God as villain. Number two, to picture himself as God. The second is grounded in the first. Without distorting the first, he can never achieve the second. That is why the greatest attack in human history is been on the Bible. Not on any other book. Not on any other book. The Bible. The Bible. The Word. The Word. If he can attack the Word at multiple levels, he can succeed because he can picturize God as a villain and he can picturize himself as God. As if he is for human freedom. He is for human joy, human pleasures, human goodness. That's how every... Time, Satan brings about a religion, he succeeds. Then the serpent said to the women, you will not certainly die. You will not surely die. Look at verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The next lie, fourth lie, God is not good. I know, we sing it, but we don't believe it. God is not good. We are all like my son. Want to hang on dangerous side of reality. And do not want God to restrict our freedom. And somehow think God is not good when he pulls us back. So now Satan has succeeded. Because now Satan can boldly say, God knows. God has some knowledge that he is not willing to let you experience. Because he is not good. Because if he lets you experience that, you will become his rival. That's exactly what happened, right? I will, five evils. Now Satan will take the first, uh, sorry, evil have her first evil. God knows. Look at those words. I told you, right? Eve omitted the word, in the day you eat of it, Satan picks on that. God knows that in the day you eat of it, it's not like this pleasure is somewhere in the distant future. It is immediate. It is now. That is how we are all pushed into sin. See, if you are going to get pleasure after 10 years, if you commit a sin now, will you do it now? No. Immediate gratification. We want it now. This is not LIC, right? We want it now. Not after we die. Now. So what is Satan's premise? God is not good. He's not good in his essence. He's not good in his intentions. He's not good in his words. He's not good in his attitude. And hence, you can never trust him to be a good creator, God, father or savior. He's not good. He's not good. He doesn't want you to enjoy. What's the answer? Jesus says in Mark 10, 18, only God is good. He's not saying God is good. He's saying only God is good. By saying God is only good, he's saying nobody else is good. That's the understanding there. Intrinsically, only God is good. Listen to this carefully. I spoke to one young person who got himself into this uh, Satanism and all of that. So he told me, I asked him, why did you get into this? He told me, Anna, the devil told me, I'm not good, but I can make you happy. The devil actually does that. Listen, God many times will not make you happy, but he's good because he wants to make you holy. Holy. God is good. 
in his intentions. Satan pretends to be good in his advices, but in his intentions, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Is God good? Yes. Look at Psalm 90 to 15. What's the last part? There is no... There's no unrighteousness in God. Where is God's goodness seen in creation? Listen to this, okay? When God created man in his image, God has paid man the greatest compliment. What is the compliment? Personhood. L.T. Jaychandran, who, uncle who, works for, who worked for RZIM, he made an amazing statement. He said, personhood is an exalted position. Is an exalted position. We all have intellect. We all have will. We all have emotions. But all these three cannot exist by themselves without a person. This was the question I posed to the discon devotee. Is Krishna a person or the attributes just exist by themselves? What God has given you is the greatest thing. He has given you a personhood. What good is intellect without personhood? What good is power? Say, sun is powerful. But sun can't move out of its orbit. Thank God. Can't. No will there. All three are given to man. In other words, only man has the ability to even sin. Not even the angels. His goodness is seen in the greatest gift he has given us, personhood. That's why L.T.J. Chandran uncle says, when you look at the Hindu uh, uh, understanding of God, when Vishnu becomes, when he's in, he takes different incarnations, there are animal incarnations also. And then he said, there's only one incarnation God can take, that is man. Why? Because God created us in his image. And the theologian said, God foreknew that one day he will become man and hence he created us in his image. Is God good? Yes. In his essence he is good? Yes. God said, I will make all my glory pass before you. And what is that? My goodness. Listen to this. When Moses asked God to show him his goodness or his glory, if I were there or if any modern skeptic was there, he would have expected God to tell him how the entire raw material was brought by God to create the universe. As if that were the only important question. And God says, I will show you my glory. See what he says. Exodus chapter 33. What does he say? I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, and I will be gracious and merciful. My friends, why is God talking about these two things? Grace and mercy. Why is he not talking about how in his scientific mind he created, he brought this entire universe into existence? Why? Because God is a relational being. And he wants to give you life eternally. Knowledge, intellect and will outside of personhood are no use. Are of no use. And that's why God says, I relate with you. Let me tell you, the greatest thing I can give you is my relationship. Relationship with me. And that can only happen in grace and in mercy through my son. Now the question then is, what about evil? What about evil? This is this. This is one question that appears, that should appear in everybody's life. Either through skeptics or probably in your own mind. If God is good, is there? Look at what Augustine said. If God is, why is there evil? If God isn't, why is there good? 
Now that doesn't solve the problem. Okay? It's a nice rhetoric. But keep that in mind. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 4. If God is good, why is there evil? Hey, by the way, can we go to Acts chapter 17? I gave you a Look at God's goodness, okay? And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from. If God did not make you as a woman in this century, putting you in this place, you would have not known God. He has determined your boundaries, your gender, your DNA. Every single thing in your life has been determined by God. Why? For one particular reason. That you may reach out to him. For he is not far from you. What a good God you and I worship. What a good God. For God is good to all he has made. Do you know that verse? You heard that verse anytime? God is good to all he has made. Where is that verse, Sammy? Psalm 145, verse 9. Can you go back to this verse, please? For the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has. Is God good to all? I want a louder answer. Is God good to all? Yes. Is God good to Satan? Why are you thinking? Yes. 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 What about hell then? Hell is not an evil place. It is a place where evil is punished. It is a morally good place because a morally good God must punish evil. God in him, there is no unrighteousness. God is a good God. To all he has made, he is good. He is good. Then what about evil? First Timothy chapter 4 verse 4. For everything created by God is, can we read that please? For everything created by God is. Now if there is evil, it is not created by God. That one thing you can know. That one thing you can know. However, that doesn't solve the question. The question that most people ask is this. Why does evil happen to good people? The question is actually not completely true. Because there is nobody good. There are innocent people. No good people. R.C. Sproul, the theologian who died in 2017, said this. Or rather, who went to be with the Lord said this. Said... He raised a question, he answered a question which he himself raised. Why does evil happen to good people? It only happened once and he volunteered. It only happened once and he volunteered. If God is good, why is there evil? There's one person who answered that question and see the answer. Go to John chapter 17 verse 11, oh sorry, Acts chapter 2 verse 23 please. Acts 2.23. What happened in Acts 2.23? Peter gives a summary of God's foreknowledge and ordained plan and human execution of this greatest evil. What is the greatest evil ever committed? Killing of the Holy Son of God. And see what Peter says. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received uh, 26, bro. 26. 23, 23. 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the Definite plan of God and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So who committed the greatest evil in the universe? Wicked men. Us. Who planned it? Louder please. The the verse says, I am not saying it. Who planned it? In his foreknowledge and plan, he planned it. Now your and my question will be, 
how can this God be good? If this is the kind of evil happened to the only good person who ever existed. Look at the answer of Jesus. John chapter 17 verse 11. John 17 11. And I am, what is John 17? It is the prayer of Jesus Christ, right? It's called the high priestly prayer, right? It is just before, a few hours before he was going to be crucified. In that intense moment of agony and sorrow. This is what he says. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Can we read the next two words, please? Now listen, every time a question of evil comes, it comes after evil is committed. Got it? Once the news of an evil incident happens, we raise the question, if this evil happened, where is God? Now here the greatest evil is going to be taken place in human history. Because the only son, the only holy, innocent, sinless son of God is going to be crucified by wicked people. Before this evil is committed, see how, how he addresses his father. What does he say? I, I heard a lot of people pray, loving father, gracious father, but I never heard anybody pray holy father. Before the greatest evil was going to come upon him, planned by his own father, going to be executed by wicked men, he looks at his father and say, you are holy. You are holy. And verse 25, verse 25, what does he call? I heard many people pray, never did anybody, or maybe they pray, I'm just saying this. In this intense moment of agony, when evil is staring at his face, this is the quintessence of all evil, planned by his father. When it was going to come upon him, he turns his eyes to his father and says, you are holy and righteous. The evil in this world can never obliterate the holiness and the righteousness of God. As Josh McDowell says, when people get to heaven and literally they scream at God saying, you are wicked, you are evil, you, have, you are the one who is the reason for all the evil in the world. And, and they curse him. And God pulls the curtains down where you will see the son of God hanging on the cross. This is before evil was committed. He looks at his father and says, you are holy and you are righteous. Is God good? Hello? He is. Why is he good? Because he is holy and because he is righteous. The greatest evil ever committed brought the greatest good that was ever possible by the only holy, righteous Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Is God good? He is good. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. God is good. You are still growing. We are still growing. Only on the other side of eternity shall all mysteries, if God permits, will be revealed. But what we know about God must worship, must make us worship what we do not know about God. What are the four lies? God is not the Lord. What is the second lie? God is not. What is the third lie? God is not. What is the fourth lie? And all are progressive. Fifth, sixth, seventh, quickly. God is against your pleasures. This is at a practical level. If God is stopping you from enjoying this, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. The idea there is you will be like God. God is at a higher level of enjoying pleasures. He has restricted you. What a, what a self-defeating lie that is. If God is against pleasures... Why will God create Adam and the Eve with the cravings they have and with the objects that can meet their desires? What a self-defeating lie that is. 
God is not against our pleasures. In fact, he's the only one who is for our pleasures. David Pawson, I think, said this. He said, we think, we think like this. We think God hates sex and Satan loves it. That is our imagination. But the truth is actually opposite. God loves it. Satan hates it. That's why the perversion and the distortion. Because the end of human consummation is not pleasure, but God. All pleasures truly lead you to God. Is God against our pleasures? No, he is for it. (laughs) In fact, he desires and pleads with us to enjoy these pleasures. Isaiah 55, 1-3 Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? By the way, this is not talking about buying bread, okay? This is talking about the whole context of salvation. Why do you want to waste money on that which is not bread and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me. Are you understanding? God is saying, come enjoy. Come and enjoy. Please come and enjoy. Are you able to hear? Come and enjoy. I am sick of myself believing the lie that somehow it is Satan who gives me the pleasures. No. Never. God, I told you, I think, Lewis in his books, the screw tape letters, the senior devil writing to the junior devil says, don't press the pleasure button too much on your patient, the newborn again person. Because if he ever comes to know that all our years of experimentation could not bring about one pleasure, he will know that all pleasure comes from the enemy, God. No pleasure, no pleasure has come from anybody except God. Imagine life without taste buds. Can I just use some very casual things that we do for illustrative purposes? You don't itch your ear to clean it more than to enjoy the pleasure you get. We are packed that way. Even when you go to the loo to relieve yourself, there's pleasure in it. We are wired in every way to enjoy pleasures. And even in the fallen world, through pain, he brings about pleasures. One great example is when a mother gives birth. God is good. He is for your pleasures. The enemy is the one who distorts. Because the church has gone to two extremes. One who has made pleasure God. The other who has avoided the God who has given all the pleasures. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 16 to 19. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. Doesn't mean don't become rich. If God has given, if God has drawn the circle around you, praise God. But there's a command. What is the command? Don't be haughty. And then, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches. But put your hope in whom? And then why? Why should we put our hope in God? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. When we were coming to the camp, we were exhausted to pack and come. Because... I have to. Pre- I had to prepare for the sermon. I had to send the games list to uh, Pastor Vijay and Sister Jason. I had to work on something that I have at my YFC office, and uh, I have a huge responsibility that is very tiny. My son, we're exhausted. God was just reminding me, trust me, I will provide everything for your enjoyment. The tension is between whether I will trust Him 
or whether it will work. God says, I provide everything for your good, truly for your enjoyment. What has, what did you enjoy so far that didn't come from God? What did you enjoy that Satan gave you? Nothing. Even to tell you the lie, Satan has to exist which has been, who has been created by God. Next one, look at this. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 to 4. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness and all of that. Look to, turn to verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Why? So that through them, through the word, you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is Genesis 2.16. Obey my command. Partake my nature. Enjoy the life I give you. What is salvation then? It is the restorative work of God to bring us back to himself. Listen, sin is worship gone wrong. Salvation is God setting us back right again. What is sin? It is our hunger for worship gone wrong, badly wrong. When God created us, he has put desire in us to worship. But the desire can only find its satisfaction when it is meeting the design of God. When sin came, the design was spoiled. The desire still exists. Therefore, we pursue all our desires outside the design of God. And hence, never do man, never do men enjoy satisfaction. Never. Is God for our pleasure? Only He is for our pleasures. He gives everything for our pleasures. Last one, look at this. He charges us with sin when we don't enjoy pleasures. He says, you are sinning when you don't enjoy. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. People have committed two evils. What is the first evil? Hmm, the first commandment is not, do not commit adultery. Don't become God. I am the only one. Everything else is out of it comes. The nine commandments are the fruits. The first one is the root. The root of all evil is to turn away from God. How can you turn away from God? Only by believing lies. They have forsaken me. And the second one is, they have turned away from the design. But the desire is there. Therefore, they have to look for that satisfaction in some place. So they, they, they hew for themselves cisterns that can't hold water. Look at Psalm 16 verse 11. One more verse please. I like the flow here. Look at this. Psalm 16 11. David says, you make known to me the path of life. Is there? Psalm 16 verse 11, did I give you? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. You look at three things there. Life, presence, joy, pleasure. Where is life? In God. How do you know if that is the true life? Two things you'll have. You'll have everlasting joy and everlasting pleasures. Look at the words of R.C. Sproul. He said, Many people don't understand that sin often gives us pleasure but never gives us lasting joy. These are two different things. Sin often gives us pleasure but never lasting joy. So what is the fifth lie? God is not for your pleasures. What's the sixth lie? God is against your joy. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Because God is prohibiting you from eating that fruit that can give you that pleasure, He is therefore against your joy. Is that the truth? No. Only God is for your joy. Look at Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 14. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But two, four things. Number one, fear the Lord your God. Number two, 
walk in all his ways. Number three, love him. Number four, serve him with all your heart and soul. Number five, keep the commandment and statutes. Read the last part which I am commanding you today. For your, you put those five things together, there's one word for it, worship. Love God, serve God, fear God, obey God, do everything God says, worship that is. Why? For your own good. My friends, in every command of God, you can see God's goodness hidden, which is revealed after obedience, not before. In every command of God, you see God's goodness revealed after obedience and not before. For your own good. What is the greatest commandment did Jesus say? How can love be commanded? Isn't that a type of rape? How can love be commanded? God is so good that he knows that in our evil perverted nature we will never turn to him. He has made it a command for us. He is pleading for our joy. He is pleading for our pleasures. He says, come, come, come. How can love be a command? Because Jesus says in John 15, 9 to 11, I love you as the Father loves me. Keep my commands. The only way to love him back or to remain in his love, look at this maybe. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. What is the command there in verse 9? What's the command? Abide in my love, right? If you keep my commands, so Jesus is saying, I love you. And this is no second-hand love. Just as the Father loves me, I love you. I have a request for you. I have a command for you. Remain in my love, which means enjoy my love. But how can you enjoy my love? There's only one way. Obedience. Right? Now, why does he want us to obey so that we can be loved by him? Why does he want us to be loved by him? First of all, look at verse 11. I have spoken to you these things. Why? That my joy may be in you and your joy may be. You can never, never separate life and joy. The pursuit of happiness is God's single idea. It's God's idea for you. Not only is God's idea for joy given to you, the path is also given to you. Obedience. Now why does God want you to obey? Not so that by your obedience you can build bungalows in heaven. No. So that you may have the fullness of his joy. Satan tells you lies. Always. 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 Who is against joy? Satan is, not God is. Last one. Last one. God is against your freedom. Last but not the least, God is against your freedom. This is how we feel when we are sinning. A pastor once who came to preach in one of our YFC evangelistic camp said, how difficult it is for a believer to sin. Before sin, during sin and after sin. It's very difficult. We have to believe the lie God, God is against our freedom. But the salvation work of God tells us so much that it is who who has set you free. So Satan now comes and says, God doesn't want you to do that, right? He doesn't want you to eat that, right? He's against your pleasure. Why? He doesn't want you to be like him. Why? Because he is against your joy. In other words, he restricts you. Let me tell you, go ahead and do what you want to do. Go ahead and do what you want to do. Is God against our freedom? <laughs> him whom the sun sets free is? Free indeed. Free indeed. Look at two verses. Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? Listen, 
we are living in a day and age where we fight for rights not for righteousness these are two different things altogether why should i forfeit my right to do whatever i want as a child and submit to the authority god has placed in my life because righteousness comes before pleasure if you and i move or remove righteousness as the goal of every pursuit of pleasure what we are going to achieve is not freedom but anarchy a state of absolute rebellion that ultimately leads to self destruction did i use too many complicated words did you get that why should we obey because the goal of pleasure is righteousness right matthew 3:13 to 16 then jesus came from galilee to judea jordan to john to be baptized by him john says john would have prevented him saying i need to be baptized by you and do you come to me but what did jesus say let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill listen jesus doesn't have to be baptized for there is no sin in him but there is an order placed by god and look at jesus reasoning my father is the lord he is sovereign he is the only truthful person therefore he is good because he is for my pleasure and obeying him it gives me greatest joy because it is he who loves my freedom and therefore i obey him jesus obeyed the father not because it was necessary for him but it was the right thing to do now what is the difference between fighting for rights and righteousness when you are fighting for rights the core of your fight is born out of pleasure i want what i desire when you fight for righteousness you are fighting for something that is morally higher than you you are believing that there is truth above me and i am not the definer of all truth see the god said you are free to eat from every tree of the garden fruit of the garden but from one tree what god is trying to say is this your freedom must be governed by my definition of good and evil and why do i want to govern so that you may live and not die if there's any person who has the right to do whatever he wants who is he god jesus let's close with these words philippians 2 5 to 11 have this mind among yourselves which is your sin christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the god the glory to the glory of god the father my friends the last lie upon which satan was going to bring the wall of god's character down in the life of adam and eve and upon all humanity including believers is this that god is against your freedom they've come too far now they've come too far now the fall has already happened it is now just an enaction or enacting what has already taken place inside
Because the Bible says, no man is tempted by God, but every person is tempted by his own evil desires. And there is a graphic picture of how evil, sin and death give birth to one another at the right time. God is not the Lord. God is not sovereign. God is not truthful. God is not good. And hence, he is against your pleasures, your joy, your freedom. Who doesn't fight for freedom, joy and pleasures at an existential level? We all. But listen, the desires are placed by God. But whose design are you following? And And Jesus came down to set it right. And you and I, by his spirit, through the word, can enjoy it. You and I can truly enjoy it. Shall we look to God in prayer, please?